Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Henry Albrecht, CEO of Limeade, is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. Limeade is a software company founded in 2006 that elevates the employee experience and helps build great places to work. The idea for Limeade was ignited from his time at Intuit, realizing that there should be a software system that can measurably improve your overall well-being in the same way that Intuit measurably improves your financial well-being. Henry is also on the board of directors of Cause a basketball player, a Seattle native, a husband, and a father. Welcome, Henry. Thanks. Good to be here. You um, do have a good podcast voice. Oh, thanks. That's been the one feedback. I'm like, yay. That's my ninja skill, the podcast voice. I think it sounds weird with these headphones, though, right? Okay, we're starting with rapid fire. You ready for me? I'm ready. Okay, since you're a baller, serious hooper, who's your favorite NBA player of all time? I'm I think guessing. I got to go with Xavier McDaniel, the X-Man from the old Sonics days. Nice. Yeah. Old school. I yeah, hope you saved some of your Number 34 Sonic is my favorite number for that reason. Sweet. What one word would you use to describe your leadership style? Optimistic. Nice. Well, you got to be. 2006. You're like pushing in there. I have some there. preachers back if you go back far enough in my family tree. So I think I like to... Uh, evangelize and proselytize a brighter future. Yeah, love it. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert, 100%. 100% extrovert. Yes. Um, what's your favorite way to relax? <laughs> rapid I like to, fire. I'm a, I'm a, I know, I'm not very rapid fire. I guess I'm kind of an athlete, so I like to play golf or tennis or basketball or, you know, go on long walks or whatever. Anything that gets me physically active is good. Yeah. And what are you currently reading to stay informed, like, business-wise? Well, first of all, I read probably more novels than more for business fun. books because I do business, you know, 50, 60-plus hours every week. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading a novel called The Overstory, which is awesome. It's about... It's a novel about trees and their <laughs> role in the world. Um, cool. So you're good, reading a yeah. lot for fun. Yeah, more for fun. Yeah. I, I read workbooks, but they tend to be more about psychology and how people's brains work and how they think than how to run a P&L or grow a sales and marketing team. Yeah. And you can apply that in your business. I love Limeade, love, love, love. And I'm super psyched to have you here. But we're going to take it back from before you started Limeade because you have a really cool background. I love that you're from Seattle. And I have the privilege of saying that I've known you for a long time, although... Um, you know how in that way that like the senior doesn't know the sophomore. I think I was like a freshman and you were older and you're the youngest, youngest of three of boys. Four. four boys. Yes, three older brothers. Yeah. And so were you always kind of this driven extrovert or did you blossom at a certain age? Well, I think having three older brothers means you have to uh, fight for your dinner. You have to um, be a little bit louder and more pushy and more out there just to survive and, and compete for, 
you know, attention or food or yeah. scraps uh, yeah. with three big brothers around. So and I had, think that certainly helped. I know that you did uh, the private school thing. Was that from um, early ages or just in um, middle school and high school? Yeah, I went to private school, middle school and high school, mainly because my mom wanted me to and turned out to be great. I, you know, yeah. have great friends, I'm sure. There's all manner of schools that would have been great for me. I just feel super blessed and grateful for all the educational access I've had. And on the other side of that coin, it would be cool if everybody had access to that quality of education. So completely. Um, yeah, that's a whole Is thing. that something that you're kind of passionate about? Um, I'm passionate about giving back. I think you saw on the profile that I'm on the board of this company, Cause, which is a social giving platform. It's It's all about democratizing giving and getting people to make giving more of a habit. So mm -hmm. something you can do in an app in 10 seconds, if you see a charity you like in any field, just giving 10 bucks or 20 bucks or three bucks or whatever feels right at the time. Mm -hmm. Where did you um, learn that value? So education and education related to giving has always been kind of the number one value that both my parents, you know, said, you know, my dad was pretty successful in business, but always says, you're never, you're never going to get a penny from me, mm -hmm. but you'll always have education. And I love so, that. so you can kind of sort out the rest. And I think that that turned out to be a really great value. Mm -hmm. So I also read in Getting Ready for This that both of your parents are from the Midwest. How did they end up coming uh, out to Seattle, and how did that um, shape you as far as them being from the Midwest? Yes, uh, semi-true, actually. My mom's family came from the Midwest, came from Iowa, actually, in, in uh, but she was born in Seattle. So oh, we're she's actually old-school Seattle, but my dad's family is from Iowa, and he grew up on a farm. In Iowa, his his dad passed away when he was quite young, so he was the man of the family um, with two younger siblings on a farm when he couldn't drive the tractor. He couldn't reach the pedals. Wow. And so I think he had a, uh, a strong work ethic, to say the least. For sure. But also, um, you know, not really into ego and not really into blowing your own horn. So mm -hmm. I probably have run afoul of that uh, ethic a few times as a hustler You're, and you, entrepreneur where you, you have to. But, yeah, you uh, gotta be, you got to be able to do that. Someone's got to promote you, right? And so you're the youngest of all these boys. Are any of them also in business? Yes. Uh, my, my oldest brother, John, is retired, lives uh, on the East Coast and seems to be happy traveling around and keeping himself busy. Uh, both my brother Carl and my brother Rich are live in Seattle and both also are CEOs of their own companies. Oh, wow. Yeah. All sorts of drive there. Yeah. Where did that come from? Mom, dad, both? Yeah, I mean, I would say it was a competitive environment growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, I remember playing basketball in the driveway with my brother Rich where we would play to a thousand and we'd get to like 108 to 105 and we'd get into a fight. And then, you know, we'd end up rolling around. To a thousand? On, yeah. And then you roll around on the concrete, you know, in the rain in Seattle. And then you come in a little bit bloodied and dirty. And mom says, what's going on? No basketball for a week. And then you just start off from zero again. I think we all yeah. uh, grew up I, in that I sort of that. environment. Yes. I like to ask these types of questions because selfishly as a mom, I like to get little nuggets from other people of how they were raised and how you can say like, when you take four, you're like, oh, one of them's going to be kind of a derelict. But it sounds like you got four for four that are pretty focused and driven. Are you all? Oh, no, no, no. We can't. I mean, you can't skip the derelict phase well, that we all went through. Of course, you got to, though. You got um, to. What was your derelict phase? I would just phase? say we all made it through uh, made it through pretty well out of the derelict phase into was there adulthood. A, was there a rebel phase that you went through? <laughs> I was always such an angel. 
<laughs> Nobody can see Henry right now, but he's got like a big twinkle in his eye, a big smile. <laughs> Always such an angel. So yes. you started after high school at Rice University. How did you choose Rice? Correct. Uh, Rice was the best school I got into, mm-hmm. so I always think that's a good that's a good place to start. You had some start. disappointment of schools that you didn't no, get into. I, I mean, Rice was a great school. I loved going to Rice. Um, it was super fun and educational and great. Um, it, as it turns out, I wanted to play basketball, and I wasn't quite sure. And then I realized down there sitting out a year and not, you know, not playing that I really wanted to play. So I ended up transferring to Claremont McKenna College and near L.A. Mm-hmm. for my last three years. Was any of that a regret of like, no. hey, I wish I had gone right away to Claremont or like no. a smaller school? I mean, you've seen me. I'm I'm a 6'5 power forward. It's not like the NBA scouts were drooling over me. So I just knew that, um, you know, get a great education. If you get to play sports, intramural or varsity or whatever on yeah. the side, that's great. And and I love playing basketball. I, I consider myself a triple major because I studied uh, English literature and economics, mm-hmm. but I consider basketball kind of e- equal and on par with those two because I think I learned every bit as much from that as I learned from from the yeah. classroom. What would you say you took away, and um, did you have any coaches or teachers along the way that kind of influenced you? I remember having a coach in high school who was trying to talk me out of Division One sports um, because. He said, you know, it's a full-time job, and would you rather have a D1 ride where you're literally it's a 40-, 50-hour-a-week job at an okay academic institution, or would you rather go to the best school you can go to and get the best education you can? Because, you know, it's it's such a fallacy that kids believe that they'll go make millions of dollars. And I think the exception I wish someone had said that proves the like rule, that. right? I mean, there yeah. are people that, you know, I've, I'm— spending some time with the UW men's basketball team, there's definitely some NBA players on that team. And they're they're amazing athletes and great kids. But I think for every one of those, there's a thousand high school athletes whose parents think mm-hmm. that they're going to be the ticket to the future. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying lose your dream. I'm just saying it's such a fine balance. A it's bit. such a fine balance as a parent because my son, well, now he's going to be 15 but when he was like 10 he was a hundred percent i will be playing basketball for duke and i was like how do i break it down for you baby <laughs> like i think the chances are but you know it's like keep your dreams but now he's lacrosse but you know it is it is pretty interesting i mean i think if you saw isaiah thomas growing up who played at uw who was 511 you know you might have said he'll never you know he was yeah. 5'11", bro. You're not going to yeah. make it. Then again, you know, he was scoring 30 points a game for the Celtics for a while there. So Yeah. Do you follow it, basketball it, like you closely right now? I still I still follow NBA basketball. And you still play? Um, I quit playing last year. Because you got injured? I made it to 49. I figured that's a pretty good age. Well, everyone I know of, of our generation and our age that's still playing, so many injuries. I mean, so many injuries. I'm a big believer in preventive care, and I've seen so many friends go down. And it, oh, yeah. it was taking me three or four days just to kind so, of walk yeah. straight after playing. So the writing was yeah. on the wall for and sure. And you probably couldn't go out and just play like halfway. You got to be like, I'm either playing or I'm not playing. That's correct. So what are you doing right now to stay in shape and like keep your energy? Um, you know, I do a lot of walking during me- during work. So I'll put on my headset and just go do meetings while I'm walking. On like a sure. treadmill desk? No, I just walk outside, walk through. Oh. Be- I work in Bellevue, you know. That's cool. I've you had might a have heard of it. It's <laughs> yeah. a beautiful suburb, uh, leafy. Um, I I also am starting to get back into tennis, which I haven't played since oh. I was a kid, which is quite fun. A little Super bit of golf. Super fun. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I've had a few people ask me for walking meetings, but they don't tell me until I get there. Yeah. And no, I'm like, for, with shoes. a woman, you got to be like, can you wear some like flats or something? I've had that happen a couple of times. I'm like know. walking in cobblestones. Like, give, give a girl a little warning. Well, this is a heads up. If you ever come out to Limeade, wear comfortable shoes. Okay. I think that's really smart. We got a, a treadmill desk in our office and I look over and everyone else is using it and I don't use it, but I need to. So you everyone keeps lecture. running shoes. You need some sort of. I know. I need to. So you did awesome in school. You studied economics and literature thinking maybe you wanted to be what? Well, I started out as a literature major because that was really what I loved to do. I loved mm-hmm. reading, writing. Um, that was that was by far my favorite. And I think I loved it so much that I took all the classes and was basically done with the major my junior year halfway through. And I started thinking, hmm, maybe I want a job someday because <laughs> I, I don't think I have the patience to be a school teacher. And, you know, being a novelist seems like a risky uh, lifestyle choice with, um, you know, the odds. The drinking <laughs> yeah. and the suicide rates yeah. and all that stuff. So yeah. And as an extrovert, I thought, you know, maybe I'll I'll use my left brain a little as well. So yeah. I got a econ what they call a dual major. And my first job, well, we'll get into this, but I actually I played it. basketball for a year in Europe after school. So I read this in Portugal. In Portugal. I just went to Portugal. I loved it. Lisbon. It's it's amazing. It's yeah. gorgeous. It's, it's the it, coolest. We just went back this summer for a, a vacation. Yeah, was, I was there this summer it was, too. It's so awesome. Yeah, it's a great place to visit. I recommend it. So I, how does that come about? Like if someone's listening and they're like, how do I get to go to play basketball in Portugal for a year? Go, go play hoops at a small college and go to play pro summer leagues and someone will find you if you're good. And who are you matched up with when you're in this type of team? Like who are you playing with when you're in Portugal? Uh, the, the teams are built with two, they're allowed two estrangeros or two foreigners okay. per team. Most of those will be American, sometimes Brazilian uh, or Angolan or, you know, from a different place. Wow. Um, and who do I you love play the Portuguese against? people. They're not known for being super tall. No, they're not. So, you know, great Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah, one of the greatest soccer though. players in the world. Like, but, but basketball is maybe... Um, it's helpful to be yeah. six five or six six when you go over there. And so, were you doing that thinking this is just my kind of the equivalent of doing Sun Valley for a year, or were like this is my begin- <laughs> this is my entree to the NBA? No, no, I, I never once thought that I would be an NBA player. Uh, it was fun. It was a great way to spend a year. Yeah, um, and you would I had probably a chance encourage... to go back to another uh, country the next year, and then that team went bankrupt. Oh, and so I decided maybe this is the writing on the wall. Yeah, and. Uh, I need a real job. So that's when actually I used my, to get back to my econ degree, I, I took a job in the Bay Area doing uh, statistical and economic consulting. Yeah. And I did that for four years. I read this about you that you were like, I didn't really love the kind of get paid for my time model of consulting. Um, yeah, it seemed a little bit strange to think about the hours you work as the mm-hmm. metric of your of your pay and your performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I build tons of hours. I was always happy to work hard and work long. Um, But I saw some, what I would consider slightly iffy motivations. Mm -hmm. I I think there can be times in consulting where you've already sold the job and maybe the job's done, but you have a hundred thousand or 200,000 more billing, you know, in the project. And so you end up, you know, sitting staying late and doing of overtime course. and creating 500 charts that'll probably never be looked at or used yeah and it's definitely and a also model. you know it's it's up or out which is fine because i was moving up but it's also it felt like it could be a little bit of a stronger culture we'll say this i had some great mentors and bosses um so 
all in all, it was fine, but it was enough time to help me realize that that career wasn't a good yeah. career for me. I had there was a woman named Deborah Aaron who uh, was a microeconomics professor at Northwestern and a manager that I really looked up to, and she was great. And she also helped me understand that maybe that wasn't where I should be headed as my yeah. path. And yeah, so. and so then you made a complete switch. Well, then I went back to business school. Yeah, uh, I went to Kellogg at Northwestern because I was already out there doing the work in in the Chicago area, and it was a perfect school for me because I was kind of jaded on business and jaded on the business model, and yet I didn't know what else to do. And mm -hmm. it was a great school, and it really reignited, I guess, my sense of teamwork and passion, and and maybe taught me for the first time that you get to kind of architect your own path through mm -hmm. life, and that you don't just follow in the steps that are laid out by some weird expectations society has for you. Yeah. Are you mentoring other people now? And what's your kind of overall take on going back for an MBA? I am mentoring people in various at various levels. I'd like to think I'm a mentor to my kids, but I think probably um, a little bit more on the professional side and um, some college sports folks as well. I would say uh, if you love learning, then you should pursue learning, whether that's going back for an MBA or a PhD or a master's or on the job learning or putting yourself in a role that's uncomfortable or Peace Corps. To me, I, I have always loved learning. And to me, that was a great opportunity that I had, you know, fortune enough to be able to afford to go to an MBA. I would recommend it for anyone who wants a business career. Yeah, for sure. And so did Intuit recruit you out uh, of there? Is you could say they recruited. I, that would make me feel good to think they recruited me. Well, how did, you go, how did you go about it? You begged. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they have great career placement offices at most of these business schools, but I knew I wanted to be in high tech on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And um, why? What were you kind of fueled by at that time? I love marketing and technology. I mean, that that was marketing is probably my my true passion out of mm -hmm. business school because I love the idea of building a brand, and I think there's so much psychology in marketing. It's really it's, it's applied psychology and I have a real passion for the psychology of how people think and how mm -hmm. things work. Why so, they do the things they do. Yeah. And, you know, there are very few tech companies at the time. And technology was obviously an exploding thing, dot-com mm -hmm. boom, literally exploding. Um, but there were very few companies that I think had the concept of brand at mm -hmm. their core. And Intuit was one of them. Their founder, Scott Cook, was a a P&G brand manager before he started the company. And I think they had that ethos as well. So yeah. although I'd like to think they recruited me, uh, I applied, begged. I begged, and <laughs> I did all, you know, I did all the hustle things that candidates should do that sometimes they don't do. What are what some you of know, as a, as a recruiter, yeah. like, get to know every single person you possibly can there, learn a hundred stories about what it's like to be there, you know, find people who can influence the process and have mm -hmm. them all recommend you if, if they like you. Yeah. So and what, a lot of hustle. What words, I guess, would you use to describe the culture there? And did you bring any of those qualities into Limeade when you started it? I think it's very values-driven, um, team-oriented, supportive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I remember having walks with various bosses of mine, Craig Carlson, Peter Karpis, Laurel Lee, Allison Manukin, where they would just take me out and we would go walk around campus and talk about business problems and ideas. And I felt like I had great mentors. I would say I, I've stolen almost everything that I learned there. Uh, you know, I think the values driven thing is probably the most where they they got together as an organization, documented and wrote down all of their own values 
and they f- they flow those through everything they do mm-hmm. and that's that's what I wanted to bring is bring a very intentional culture to the company that I was part of I know that you got back to Seattle and, and worked at um, Bocata right how did that happen and why did you decide to do that well my in case you haven't heard, the Bay Area can be expensive. Yes. I was there maybe around on, the same time as you. I don't know. On one income as well. My wife was, at the time, staying home with our kids and pregnant with our second child, Josie. Yeah. And it was it was the right time for our family to mm-hmm. move back to Seattle. So we planned on moving back, and I felt I had always felt like maybe a little more of a bent towards entrepreneurship. Yeah. Entrepreneurialism than yeah. big company. Is she Intuit's from here? Is your company. wife from here? From she's, Seattle? She's from uh, Kirkland. Yeah. Now known you as Woodenville. You can call that Seattle. Now known as Woodenville. Really? She, she, she fights for Kirkland. This but, area. She's from this area. And we moved back uh, mainly for family reasons, but I wanted to work at a smaller company so that I could learn yeah. a little more of the venture backed vibe. And it was a venture backed company and it was extremely high growth and there were a lot of things to learn from it. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you started Limeade, yes. this is part of what inspired me to even start a podcast is that I became obsessed with how I built this, that podcast. I don't know if you've listened to it, but it's, it really just takes people back into those first, you know, few months. It's an idea. Like, how do you even go about it? How did you come up with the name? <laughs> yeah. So I was going through a stint in my life where I was showing up every day at work and working you know, long hours, 50, 60, 70 hours, of some travel and a high stress job. I was a VP of product at this other company and I became disconnected from that company, whether it was values disconnect or whatever reason. And I found myself in this position where I was arguing with my wife more than I needed to. I wasn't as positive and, um, just Polite and awesome yeah. and energized as I should be. I was getting a rash on my face. I was like literally physically getting a rash from some from what I would consider stress. Stay, keep away from me. And I had a yeah, it's healed now. Thank I'm God. kidding. Um, it's that many years later. And one you know, one morning I looked in the mirror and I just didn't recognize the person I was looking at. It was just so gray and flat and that's not what I'm that's not what I'm about. Mm-hmm. That's not what I want to be known as. And I realize now now that I know the science of how this happens is I was going through what I would call burnout. Mm -hmm. Burnout is a kind of a path that when people go through it, it starts with depletion and exhaustion. It goes through some cynicism and kind of lack of belief that you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And it ends with you being disengaged. And I think that's pretty much where I was. And so I quit my job and I took my life savings. I had made a little bit of dough through some stock options at Intuit and uh, put it into a, a concept in the company of improving that situation, which is basically your physical and emotional and work and relationships and resilience and all that thing is well-being. And so it was not one of these ideas where it was, oh, I saw a gap in the market and decided to build mm-hmm. it. It was literally 100% need. personal. Yeah. I want to go back to your conversation real quickly about burnout because – a, I want to make sure that none of my team members are burnt out or as people are listening and thinking, how do you recognize it? How soon um, after you realized you had kind of become burnt out, did you look in the mirror and say, I don't recognize this person? Was this like a year or like a month? Like, how do you how do you know if you're burnt out? 
there's a there's a way to talk about it exhaustion and depletion that you can think of like if you took three days off and all you did is go sit by a pool in palm springs and you still don't feel replenished when you come back that's that's a level of exhaustion and depletion that Mm -hmm. is would be indicative that maybe you're headed in the wrong direction and then when you start showing up at work and you start the things that you used to be optimistic about or oh i like this challenge what if we did this i wonder if we could get other resources to apply to this challenge or problem. If you stop, if you lose that creativity, that I would call that cynicism. So those mm-hmm. to me would be the clues. And once you're cynical, cynicism looks at work like when you see five people going to lunch and you just know that they're kind of talking bad about their boss yeah, or the no, company. And it's like, why? or when you walk up to them, hey, what are you talking about? What are you people working on? And they're like, they yeah. kind of get quiet. That yeah. that's cynicism to yeah. me. That that's the best way to think about cynicism is when people stop talking when you walk into the room. Um, if there's a CEO listening, that's like, hey, I'm really good at product. I'm really good at fundraising. I'm good at this. I'm not great at inspiring my team, or I'm not great at engaging or managing actively my team. Um, what could they be doing, or what have you learned along the way that people can do to keep their team members engaged? Well, I definitely don't think I'm God's gift to this. And I would say if I'm even decent at it, it, it wasn't the case 14 mm-hmm. years ago when what I started the, the company. What was the model I mean, when I you would say I'm, I've learned a few things in the last four or five or six years that have helped me be decent at that. Um, but I think anyone of any personality type can be inspiring if they just you know let their true selves out and be humble and be excited about what the problem that they're working on, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you see CEOs who I think of incredible as incredibly inspiring, who are extroverted or introverted, who are, have a quiet voice or have a loud voice. So Mm -hmm. to me, it's just about, is it real? Does it come from a place of real passion and energy? And, um, and just yeah, that's the most important yeah. thing. Sorry, did and I so, interrupt you? Well, no, I interrupted you, which is what I will be doing for the oh, next episode. Oh, yeah, let's just do it. We just interrupt it's on top good. of one another. Okay, so I'm just curious. So you said you were a guy. You took your savings from your Intuit money, and you said, I'm going to start this thing. What was the thing? The idea was that you can use statistical methods of measurement to measure and help people improve every valid predictor of well-being so to do that you have to think about well what what is the science of measuring people it's called psychometrics and who does it usually psychologists or organizational psychologists so i googled psychometrics actually i linked in uh psychometrics and there were only three people on all of linkedin that had that in their profile and one of them had a 425 area code which is great because that's the east side in seattle and I called that person. That person said I cost 750 bucks an hour. So that was out. And I said, great. So who's the best person you've ever worked with on this? And he said, Laura Hamill. She works at Microsoft. She's working on psychometrics. And she designs surveys that Microsoft does for excellence and employee engagement and poll surveys and capabilities surveys, et cetera. This was 14 years ago? This is 14 years ago. And I talked to Laura, and as it turns out, she was going through the exact same kind of burnout I was, only in addition to, you know, kind of minor issues in her life, she also was starting to suffer from what she considers stress-induced chronic diseases as well. So I think it really hit home that there's a strong connection between your life at work 
and your well-being. And so to me, concepts of employee engagement and employee well-being are not separate topics. They're part of, of a continuum of kind of thriving as a human being at work and in life. Mm-hmm. And Can I so, take that in a different direction? No, going? no, not at all. I'm more just <laughs> I'm more just curious because it seems like the business has started to pivot in the last few years a little bit, although it sounds like it's in your mind not pivoting, but more um, kind of building on itself. Yeah. And I would consider it kind of coming back to the first principles of what we were doing. We think that the best companies in the world are ones that show care for their employees mm-hmm. and employees can learn how to take care of themselves in that journey as well. And and so I think you, there's this whole movement in the market towards employee experience and its connection to customer experience and how people when they're at their best and they're cared for and thriving actually do better for their customers. Oh, of course. And that's kind of what we started the company as is how do you help people thrive so that their companies can thrive and mm-hmm. vice versa? You know, how do you show care for human beings at work? And we believe that, you know, well-being, inclusion, employee engagement, how you communicate with people, how you align everything to your values and have an intentional culture, they're all very related topics. So we feel like we're kind of coming home to how we started the business in the first place. And so did you find co-founders after you had the idea or just went out and found employees? Yeah, and so how did you raise money? All of that. Yeah, Laura Hamill, I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I consider a co-founder as well as Eric Rivas, our chief technology officer. Uh, also found through LinkedIn. So props wow. to the Good social job. network. That was, uh, yeah. I think we were you know, early members of that nice. system a long time ago. Um, fi- funding was, was challenging. Uh, yeah. I think who wants to, in a recession, Yeah. how many people want to invest in kind of a speculative SaaS platform focused on well-being right? as opposed to cost-cutting or helping you negotiate better prices from vendors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It was a very expansive, optimistic story in the heart of a kind of a dark time in the U.S. economy. Right. So, yeah, it was really hard, but luckily um, we have a great social support system here in Seattle for entrepreneurs, and we found probably took four or 500 meetings with angel investors and wow. found 50 or 60 that believed what we believed and four were great or 500. supporters. Yeah. And what would you tell a young entrepreneur right That's now? That's a ratio. I mean, I consider it pretty to... good. But I know I'm it is. It's not. just a lot of, it just sounds exhausting. So yeah. did you, um, did you find that process obviously not enjoyable for 500, but that kind of athlete knew the win of when the money comes in, you're like, Yes. Yeah, except most of it was already spent. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there were times we, we had an outsourced kind of finance CFO type organization that came and said, you should absolutely shut this down. You know, mm-hmm. it's not working. It's not going to work. You've spent years on it and, you know, you don't have the traction to show for it. We had a, a term sheet with the venture capitalist that was signed and all the diligence was completed. And the day the check was supposed to show up, it just never showed up. And we couldn't make payroll, and we had to do some desperate uh, borrowing to to keep people around and make payroll. So and how I, I would far say, like, uh, where do you that? learn? Where do you learn that? That's a sports learn. I mean, that's like, hey, you're down 18 points going into the fourth quarter, but you have to win to move on. So to me, that was a well-being moment. You know, some of the topics in well-being are resilience and optimism and sense of team and belief in your purpose. Those drive human well-being. Those also drive kind of survival in a startup world. So, yeah, yeah. We, we well, survived. and also your clearly your leadership style, the optimistic leadership style, and your ability to to lead 
kept people there, right, through that. That's... Well, I wouldn't. Our team, our team, all has that, and I wouldn't take too much credit for that. But I would say, yeah, we. You know, if you're working at a startup, whether you're the CEO or a co-founder or or the first software engineer, or designer, or whoever it is, mm-hmm. um, it... I, I see that. That's what. That's what exists there it's just hustle and and belief and it is a it's a terrible idea mm-hmm. until it's a good idea and did you have um the same philosophy and the same vision as your co-founders the whole time or were you ever kind of on different pages as far as where you were going with the business well i think it's rare to go through 14 years without a few arguments and disagreements along the way so i wouldn't say perfect alignment but i also think it's, it's extremely rare that you're still working with people that much later, and the three of us still work together. So that's, um, that's great. I mean, you know, people have come and gone, and those people have made incredible contributions, and we yeah. can't make, uh, you know, we wish everybody the best who's passed through the doors. But Yeah, well, I'm sure they got a lot out of it, too, and things that they've taken with them to their next company, right? That yeah. they can say, like, how do you emulate that? A company that's 100% focused on... Um, on wellness and engagement. Obviously a great place to work. Um, what are you kind of losing sleep over now? Losing sleep. I actually sleep okay, but I would say, you know, to me, happy customers is what drives every great SaaS, every great company, period. So I think we have happy customers, but I still mm-hmm. stress about it. How, want, how do you measure their happiness? Uh, we have various scores. We have net promoter scores. We have satisfaction scores. We have other metrics, like are people using the product? We have our app rating store. App store rating is, you know, always critical for us to look at. Please look at it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Um, but still, I think I think also our business, as we evolve and we talk about a broader employee experience that we can influence, um, oftentimes we have customers who bought our software six, five, four years ago on a, on a, I would say a smaller promise, just about what I would call corporate wellness, mm-hmm. which is absolutely part of what we do. In fact, I consider we've doubled down on it, but mainly by trying to provide a broader solution that more people participate in and use and ties to some very related statistical concepts like engagement and inclusion. So, mm-hmm. and what but it, you have to, you know, you have to bring people along to that. What is the current exact business model and what is the current ideal customer? We sell software as a service, employee engagement, well-being, inclusion, and communications. Those are four different modules that mm-hmm. you can buy standalone or together. So I would think of it broadly as culture-building software for large employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sweet spot for us is between 5,000 and 100,000 employees So just or the, more. the large enterprise. Yeah, large Those enterprise. are hard to get over the finish line. They are, and and I think that psycho, it's more of a psychographic segmentation. We're very evenly spread across all industries, public sector, manufacturing, retail, mm-hmm. technology, et cetera. But I would say we have a great concentration in companies who either are or aspire to be great places to work and win those awards for culture. And they see a connection between treating their people a certain way mm-hmm. And ultimately, their profitability. Mm-hmm. Where we don't do as well is companies who want to grow, let's say, only by acquisition with more of a financial mindset, sure. cost takeout, increased you know, M&A and cost takeout as a sequence, more of a financial business. Mm-hmm. Um, not as well there versus an operational business, if that makes sense. And why and not small to medium size? I, I did answer, too. But no, it's, it, let's just move on. Let's just keep going. So what about um, the small to medium size companies? Why can't they be on your platform? 
Or they can, but why is not? Yeah, not oh, the this target? ties to your earlier question, actually, which is, isn't it, it super hard to get these companies across the finish line? Oh, yeah, right? these enterprises. So I would, say, I would say half of the answer is this, having a sales and marketing engine that's optimized for selling to big companies is, is a huge barrier to entry. So we've built this over, you know, a long time to know how to market to generate leads from, process those leads, mm-hmm. give great demos, and sell to large employers. I think we're, that's a whole set of skills that is so easy in, in the world of product-led marketing, which we also want to have product-led growth, but it's so easy to overlook how hard it is it's for so these enterprises hard. to buy too. I mean, oh, having yeah. some empathy, like if you work at a hundred thousand person company, it's hard to get new solutions yeah. in through the privacy, security, purchasing, all, all of, of the bur- global. Are you selling into procurement or HR? Procurement or? plays a role. HR, talent buyers, benefits buyers. Um, you know, every buyer has their own unique challenge yeah. and, and opportunity to work with. So I would just say we have a great competence in that. Mm-hmm. Having not just the product capabilities, but a whole different sales and marketing engine. Yeah. Maybe it'll happen someday. Maybe yeah. it won't. But right now, we we have just started cracking the... Well, I would say you're also early to this market. field, to this area, right? It's it's progressive. Like, now everyone talks about pioneers. engagement. But you're what you're going to say? That's the word, the pioneers. <laughs> you know, I'm like, it's yeah. late in the evening, for those of you who don't know, whenever this comes out. We're late. We're punchy. <laughs> We're punchy right now. But so I'm thinking like, yeah, because my husband's in the same industry. It's like people are like, huh, what do you do before? And now it's like, oh, everyone. So do you have competitors? Yeah, we have competitors. I, I was going to actually reminisce back to, you know, 2009 and 10. We closed our first angel round, you know, after a few years of trying at the start of 2010. And people would laugh us out of the room. I mean, we would talk about things like mindfulness and resilience and optimism in addition to stress and depression and alcohol consumption and smoking and and nutrition, but, um, and employee engagement, sense of team, they would just say, what are you talking about? It sounds like like soft, fluffy. Are you just crazy? Yeah. And so we've spent a long time connecting those ideas to hard ROI in terms of employee turnover in terms of safety and incidents and sales and other things like that. So there was a ton of skepticism that those things were crazy. Now, I mean, I could probably list five or 10 apps for resilience and mindfulness, each of which has 20 million in revenue, maybe, maybe a hundred million. Yeah. And you can't open a business magazine without that being right in there and front and center. No, if you look at the last 20 covers of Harvard Business Review. For sure. I bet three have been about happiness, well-being, mm-hmm. and three have been about inclusion and diversity, and three yeah. have been about attracting and retaining millennial talent. Yeah. Like it's well, all same thing the... in my industry, because yeah. it's 25 years in the talent industry. The things that people are finally getting, like, engage, you can, great, we can hire them, but what about keeping them? <laughs> yes. And yes. keeping them engaged. I have to say, I do not see a lot of resumes out of LimeMade. I'm just telling you. Like, I mean, I've got a finger on the pulse of kind of movement, and it seems like um, you've been able to keep people pretty engaged and happy. Yeah, uh, knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs> knock. Uh, we have, you know, we have turnover like any company. Well, of course. But, but sometimes it's good to help people pursue their dreams, too. I yeah. mean, if we have someone who's doing a great job, but they have a dream that's bigger and better, that's going to fulfill them, um, we're happy to coach them through that process and get them to their dream job. 
Um, so yeah. yeah, we, we don't want a lot of turnover. We certainly it's, it can be extremely costly, which is our whole ROI, but I think there's a time and place for good turnover as well. For sure. For sure. And so, um, when you set the intention for the company, I'm sure that you were really mindful and deliberate about setting your company values. Are those the same values, um, today? Or do you kind of revisit them all the time? We we have revisited them. We actually started with a, a, at a pub writing down what we wanted to stand for. And the underlying ideas were edited a little bit into our values. But on the on the napkin, it might have said things like, you know, follow science and, and practice what we preach and all that. So we've turned it into our six core values, which are be it, own it, we're a team, speak plainly delight our customers and anything is possible. And my favorite's the last one because that to me embodies that you know we've we've been we've been told no our whole lives and yeah. keep you know keep bringing it. Is this an unfamiliar feeling for you to be the underdog because your resume and background is very much like it sounds like you've been no. like hey are you I, like I, it? I I mean you could you could put me you know with straight A's at all the number one schools in the country, and I would still have a chip on my shoulder. That's just how I'm wired, probably because how I grew up. Yeah. How do you go about recruiting when you're thinking about your values? I mean, how do you even measure that when you're interviewing people? Like anything is well, possible. Our values actually flow through everything we do in our people process. So how we interview, how we onboard, how we compensate people, how we hire and fire and promote people. Um, everything is operationalized in the values. So we actually would have a set of questions associated with anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Like what? In our interview guide. I'm like, give me some nuggets. Um, like, tell me a time when everybody thought you couldn't do something, but you found a way to do it anyway. Or mm-hmm. to do something totally different that solved the same problem. That's an, To me, that's like a relentless optimism type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a set of questions and we assign different values to different interviewers and we make sure that we're interviewing along those. Now, interviews are hard. You also have to look at, you know, it's hard to form an opinion in five hours with someone. So you also have to look at what the track record is. For sure. Like, and just wow, even how they made decisions. this person came from this background to achieve this much there must be some resilience in there somewhere. So it, to me, an interview is part of a process. Mm-hmm. You know, we have great recruiters. Um, they are like constantly blowing my mind at how they find people who might have a slightly unorthodox background, but are perfect for the job. Sometimes those are into. the best ones, yeah. right? That yeah. you're like, they have chips on the their shoulders too. <laughs> Sometimes. You yeah, know? definitely. Definitely. And so, um, I'm switching gears a little bit cause we could talk about Limeade for a long time. I'm very interested in the, in this conversation. Um, to talk about you, the person, like outside of work. We talked about how you kind of relax with the sports and you've got three kids. Three children. Three Alexander, children. Josephine, and William. Nice names. Yeah. Those are good ones. Alex, Josie, and Will. Alex, Nineteen, Albrecht. 16 okay. by the time this airs yeah. and 12. Nice. And so which one of them is most like you? Oh, my gosh. She would kill me if Poor she Josie. heard this. But luckily, she probably won't because she's in high school. She's got but she's jo- busy. I, she's the one who reminds me the most of myself. She yeah. has a little, uh, little attitude edge. with this yeah. you know, 16-year-old daughter. As, as is she a hooper like you? Know, is, uh, she's a hooper. She's a lacrosse player. Nice. Uh, she plays a little tennis. She's Are any of them not athletes? She's dynamic and lovable. 
<laughs> Just like you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Are any of them I don't think not... I was that low. You knew me in high school. I don't think I, I was you that were lovable. lovable in high school. I remember thinking you were cool and well, fun. Thanks. Right? Well, Boring is not for everybody. Okay, good. Right? Well, I, I would not have put you in I'm the I'm sure not I lovable. could have been nicer at times to certain people. Uh, you weren't mean to me. <laughs> okay. <good. laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah no. so Josie's probably the most like me. And so how are you raising them differently than how you were raised? It's definitely a different time and you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think I, I'm sure I'm repeating some of the mistakes of the past. I, you know, w- I work a lot. I'd love to be home more. Um, but when I'm home, I try to, you know, give them hugs every day, tell them I love them all the time and probably annoy them a little bit with that. Yeah. But if that's one thing I can leave my kids with is that I love them and I'll always love them no matter what. Yeah. That's probably, that's like, love. that's like 51% of parenting. Oh yeah. The, giving them a safe place to feel loved unconditionally yeah. is huge. Think about how many people didn't have that. That's actually really, makes me really sad when I hear those stories. And so what kind of qualities do you most hope that they have? I just hope they become, you know, become who, who they are and find out who they are. I think studying in a more business and academic sense, these concepts of well-being and engagement is I want them to find something that is a good fit for them. If they, I mean, I don't care if, if they volunteer or if they're school teachers or if they're business people or athletes or artists, or I just, I know there's a, there's a role for everyone in the world. If, if you just follow your, you know, what you want to do. And to me, you have to try a bunch of different things to do that. I'm a huge believer in, you know, having a span of educational topics and liberal arts education where you have to take history and literature and arts and math and science all together, you know, foreign languages. I'd love to see a little travel. You have to come because to my house because my kids are want. like, why am I learning this? Where does this apply to my life? And I'm trying to explain it. And they're like, do you remember this, mom? I'm like, the, the, yeah, the Odyssey. I'm like, no, but yes. <laughs> no, but I'm a better person for I having had this I'm a better person. Yeah. yeah, no, it's good. So the ultimate question that I ask everyone is really what fuels you? I should have prepared. For, I mean, it's the name of your podcast. You'd think I would have thought up something But that's really okay. You could say something good. like not so pithy. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that word. Clearly a, what, English major? Yeah, I was an English major. Do you still um, write, by the way? Not much, no. No. Hmm. I do a lot of that could work. Be what I do a lot you. of work writing. Yeah, work writing. I'm terrible at that. I, I'm i still fueled by learning. Um, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't like to win. So I still like winning. But to me, it's actually not about the winning. It's about the journey of trying to, to reach your potential potential or do something really cool i love that. um when i think back on my college basketball days which i think back fondly on i have great teammates the winning and losing is not what i remember fondly it's the practice it's showing up in like that nasty sweaty dirty dusty gym with your with your homeboys and just playing ball and trying to be the best you can and i get that same feeling you know sounds weird, but like from a great English paper or from solving an econ problem that you didn't think you could solve. Yeah. Just the, the striving and the learning. One of the sayings um, that I, that always sticks with me as, as resonating with who I am is being in the game. Like I'm not a big tat guy, but if I had one, it might say that because being in the game means you put yourself in the game. You did the prep, you did the hard work and then it's up to you. And I think there's a lot of creativity, um, 
in in being in the moment. I love that being in the game, just like being a hundred percent into whatever it is that's in front of you. And, yeah, and, I've, and the I mean, learning is huge. Yeah, and you see this in every walk of life. You see, you know, you see police officers, you see crossing guards, you see school teachers. I see some of the teachers that my kids have had or that I've had where it's just so obvious they love teaching and learning that they're there, mm-hmm. you know, and, they're and in care- the game. you know, nurses and caregivers who they literally want every moment to be great for the patients they're serving. And yeah. it's, I, I just love when that shows up and you see it and it actually people are positive yeah. even if they're in negative circumstances because yeah. they're rolling up their sleeves and putting in their work. I do like doing this podcast in moments when I get like inspired to write stuff down because I love the in the game thing. It's not one of my company values, but I'm stealing it as like a thing that I'm going to think about. So I appreciate it. It's Thank also about you. being in the moment too, yeah. which is That's hard, hard for all of us. It's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. I tend to be very future Are you in the moment oriented. right now? Now I am right now. Are you yes. focused? Yes. You're in the game and yeah. in the moment. Yeah. I'm pretty fo- I'm pretty focused on the future too. I'm not a past person as no. much. Yeah. Not me neither. Yeah. So what are you thinking for the future? And then we're and then I'm going to let you go cuz you've got you're on kid duty, right? Um future. I just like to have a you know, have a positive impact. There's probably a lot of ego in that, you know. I I want to be known as having a positive e- impact, but really deep down um I like interacting with other people in a way that leaves us both in a slightly better mood. And, you know, professionally, if our software can over time make the lives of 100 million people 1% better, that would be really cool. And Super so, powerful and, and crazy... even if it's not five percent or ten percent, but the, the just the butterfly flapping its wings effect of yes. people having just an extra ten minutes of positivity a week, or you know, an extra high five from a coworker or something. That that would be that would be cool. Would that be your like ultimate end game of like I succeeded at in this specific company in Limeade? Yeah, I think success is one of those words that once you define yourself as a success, you sound really arrogant and annoying. And and so, like dead. Yeah, and dead. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I guess that would be good to have on my tombstone. But I would hope that there's other things that I can get involved with or um, learn about as well. Yeah. I mean, we're all fundamentally ignorant, and no one person can, no matter how much they know, really be as educated or yeah. There's always someone smarter. They want to be yeah. Yeah, we never have enough time, but I really appreciate it. Seriously, thank, thank you, you so thank much. You, thank you. It's so great so to fun. see you. And so good to see so you. So awesome that you're doing this podcast. Yeah. Everyone should listen because Aww. the next person after me is going to be super interesting. <laughs> you're very interesting. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.